for joining us in the message entitled Spiritual Weapons, which is part five of Missions Possible, a series on spiritual warfare. continuing this morning on a series that I've been doing on spiritual warfare, a series I've entitled Mission Possible, because I believe that it is possible for us to understand spiritual warfare, to achieve victory over the enemy that seeks to destroy you. And so if you're just joining us this morning, we're actually in, in uh, message number five in this series. This morning we're going to be talking about the spiritual weapons that God gives us in our warfare. Now, week one, we looked at the objective that the enemy seeks to destroy. The Bible says that the thief came not but to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life abundantly. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. Lucifer came to destroy. That tells me that he can't destroy you. He seeks whom he may destroy. There's some that he can, some that he can't. And uh, I encourage you to get that message. Also, we looked in week two at the strongholds. Uh, if the enemy is going to achieve his objective, the first thing he's got to do is take control of the high ground or the strongholds. We learned that that's in the mind. The Bible says that the weapons of warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to pull down those strongholds. And so we looked at what the strongholds actually are, and that every time we uh, we don't keep God's word, we compromise the word of God, we give up just a little bit more ground towards total control of the stronghold. And we give the enemy control of our life. Week three, we looked at the unseen battle. We begin a two-part series, actually, in a series on the people, the characters that's fighting in this warfare. First week, we looked at the good guys. We looked at the angels. We talked about the fact that there are an innumerable host of angels. There's so many that you can't count them and that they're fighting on our behalf. We looked at the biblical doctrine of angels, their existence, their nature, the ministry, what they came for, and finally concluded uh, that message to try to encourage you that you're not in this battle alone. Angels are working on your behalf. We see it throughout the Bible. We see it in the New Testament how that Jesus, when he was taken up and tempted, the Bible says that after Satan left him, the angels came and ministered to him. We see Peter being delivered from prison. We see Paul, he's he's in danger of being shipwrecked. And he said, the angel stood with me this night and said that if you remain on the ship, that you'll be saved. We see them uh, guiding John when he's uh, exiled on the Isle of Patmos. We see them sparing Adam and Eve in the garden, keeping them from going back and partaking of the tree. We see them rescuing Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah, blessing Jacob. I mean, they're everywhere. Elijah, when he was running from Jezebel, the angel woke him up and fed him. And, and then he fed him a second time and gave him a cruise of water. He blessed him, and Jacob's wrestling with the angel, and then he blessed him. And all through the Scripture, we, we looked in that message at the fact Daniel was praying, and the angel came and brought him the message. He said he was fighting. There was a warfare going on over their head. He's fighting the prince of Persia. He stayed with him in the lion's den and closed their mouth. He was with the children, uh, the Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. I mean, angels are working on our behalf. Amen. And I don't know about you, but that was encouraging to me. 
to know that angels are, are with us and they're around us. And the Bible says that they are sent as ministering spirits of fire, sent to minister to the saints. So that's you and I. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, you are a saint. That's right. And because of that, God sends angels to minister to you, to the saints. Then we looked at the, the last message, the uh, second part of the unseen battle, this warfare that is going on in the heavenlies. We looked at the bad guys. We looked at the boogeyman last week. We, we looked into the demonic realm. And we looked at the fact that God has forbidden us to practice things that are in the realm of the demonic we looked at uh, the fact that we're not to have human sacrifice or divination, which is fortune-telling, observing of times, studying and using astrology to try to tell the future. He tells us we're not to be enchanters. That means casting spell, witches, not to be involved in Wicca and things of that nature, charmers, not to use magic verses and formulas and good luck charms and things of that nature. Bible tells us we're not to try to consult with familiar spirits. That means having spirit guides and talking to demonic spirits. We're not to be wizards. That's a person using sorcery or, nor or necromancers. That's a person who claims they talk to a departed spirit. And we found out that there's no such thing as a departed, departed spirit. There's no ghost in the land. <laughs> they're demons. And people that think they're talking to departed spirits or ghosts, they're talking to demon spirits or familiar spirits. We also looked at the fact, since Christians are aware of the existence of the realm outside of the natural realm, there's a tendency to be drawn and lured by that. It's interesting. It's intriguing. But sometimes people get a very unhealthy interest in the spiritual phenomenon and paranormal activity, you know, and they become ghost hunters, you know. And sometimes in church, we become the equivalent of Christian ghost hunters, you know. We're out looking for demons to cast about and all kinds of things. We had a couple, actually, from California that was passing through last week. And they met me after church and said, Pastor, we appreciate your sermon so much. It cleared up some things for us because in our church, we have some of those folks. And said so they're always trying to go and cast demons out of each other and stuff. And it's just... Said I had a back problem, and one of them came up and says, "I'm just going to have to be obedient to the spirit." Said I just pulled a knife out of your back, and I said, "Oh, please!" And she laughed. I'm like, "Well, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen it and been around it." So we kind of tried to bring some balance to that. We looked at the doctrines of demons in Scripture about the fact that Satan is real. We looked at the different names, his nature. The demons are real. We looked at some of the characteristics about them. And finally, we concluded, because I want to leave you on a positive note, in letting you know that no matter what is going on in the realm of the Spirit, you have authority over the demonic realm. Amen. The Bible says, greater is he that is within me than he that is within the world. Amen. And Satan knows that. And the most intimidating thing to a demon spirit is a Christian who knows who he is in Christ Jesus. Because, brother, they can't get nothing over on you. you know, they intimidate those who don't know who they are in Christ. Now, we, we're not supposed to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. The Bible says, think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So, I mean, you don't walk around like you're some kind of spiritual hotshot. We know that we're not anything without Christ Jesus. But we also know with that humility that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not because I am anything in and of myself, but because Christ dwells in me, the Spirit of God is in me, demons tremble.
Because you know who you are in Christ Jesus. And when you invoke His name, they know they have got to bow to that authority. And so that's intimidating to them. Today we're going to look at some other things that are intimidating. We're going to look at the weapons that God gives us. These are the most effective against the enemy. If you found your place in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, say amen. amen. Verse 3, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or natural, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imagination and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled or when you are walking in obedience let's pray father we thank you this morning for your word god it is always just ready and right for the moment that yea it's amen god you always send it lord you said i sent my word to heal them god you heal us physically lord you heal us emotionally you heal us spiritually god through your word so father i'm praying this morning that you send your word god into the spirits of those who hear this message to let them know god that they don't have to live their life in defeat god they can live their life in victory lord and we can walk around with the peace of god and the joy of god in our heart no matter what battles we face no matter if it seems in the natural that we're losing the battle god we know the battle has already been won in the spirit and Lord, all we have to do is walk in that victory, Lord, because you have given us power and authority to do that, Lord. So, Father, I pray that you just reveal that in our hearts, God, and that we can see a manifestation of that victory in the natural realm. Lord, if there's people this morning that are going through emotional problems, God, heal them, God. Show them that there's power to take authority over their mind. Lord, if there's things that's going on in their, in their emotions, God, and they can't just seem to get a control of it, God, heal them today, Lord. Father, if there's something wrong, in their physical body, Lord. I pray that you touch them and heal them today, God, and let them know that, Lord, you have come to give us victory in every area of our life, in our mind, God, in our soul, our emotions, and in our spirit, man, that we can completely be whole, the whole man, in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Boy, I just felt like the anointing to pray was coming on here. Because God sent His Word to heal you. Man, when we come together to open the Word, it's not just to get a cute little teaching say, boy, that was good preaching, and go home. It's to transform our heart and give us victory in our mind, in our emotions, and in our spirit. The whole man. God ministers to the whole man, not just to your spirit. He wants to heal your body. Amen? He wants to heal your mind, your thinking. He wants to heal your emotions. He don't want you to be out walking around a basket case. Amen? You don't need, I don't know what all that... Mood-altering stuff. You don't need that. The pill you need is the gospel, amen? And it will fix everything. promise you. Amen? Praise God. Shoo. That's good preaching, Pastor B. Amen. Well, let me get into my, my teaching this morning. <laughs> now, in this passage that we read, there, there are some weapons that are mentioned. He said the weapons of our warfare. And he doesn't tell us in this passage what they are necessarily, but he tells us what they do. He said they pull down the strongholds. They cast down arguments. The Bible calls it some, it's translated imaginations in the King James, but it's arguments which come from Satan. They cast down proud and high things that seek to stop us and others from knowing who God is. 
And they bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And they also give us power to punish disobedience when we begin to walk in obedience to God. So this morning we'll look at what some of the weapons of our warfare are, actually are. Because there's, there's actually a number of different weapons in our arsenal. Some of them are defensive to protect ourselves. Some of them are offensive. The Bible says that God will build His church. That's, that's you and I. We are the church. And He said, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Now one thing I learned a long time ago is gates don't attack you. Gates just sit there. But when we attack the gates and we are trying to take back what the enemy stole from us, the gates of hell can't stop you. So we are to be the aggressors in many, t many cases when it comes to spiritual warfare. So God gives us defensive weapons. He also gives us offensive weapons. And both are to serve in defeating Satan. And ultimately to bring every thought that we have into captivity to the obedience of God. When Satan says you can't, God says you can. So we've got to understand what is truth and what is not and walk in that. Now the first thing that he points out in that passage of Scripture is the whole context is centered around one subject, obedience. And when you think of the military, now when Paul is writing a lot of this, he is actually in captivity himself physically. He's in prison. Sometimes he is chained to a Roman soldier. That is in uniform many times. I mean, they've got their armor on. They've got their sword. And they're chained to him a lot of times because it could cost them their life if this prisoner escapes. Now, can you, be a, can you imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul all day long? No wonder so many Roman soldiers got saved. You're chained to the Apostle Paul all day, brother. I can tell you what you're going to hear. Huh? You're going to hear about Jesus that he saw on the road to Damascus. That changed his life. Amen? And so, uh, he, he builds this analogy around the military a lot of times when he's referring to spiritual warfare. And he makes those comparisons. Jesus did that. He would tell parables. He would use natural things like sowing seed and different things to explain spiritual things. So, Paul is describing some of this. And one of the first things that you have to learn in the army is obedience. It doesn't matter what your weapons are. If you don't know when to use a weapon and what weapon to use, where to use it, and how to use it, they're not going to do you a whole lot of good. Brother, if you're going against a whole army and all you've got is an M16 when what you need is an A1 Abrams tank, it's not doing you a whole lot of good. You need to know what these weapons are and how to use them. So to do this, you have to learn how to receive and follow orders from the command post. Amen? So the first thing you've got to do is learn obedience. So the first step in preparing a soldier for war, what do they do? Do they just give him a gun and a uniform and say, go fight? No, they send him to boot camp. And what do they do in boot camp? They teach you how to obey an order without question. That's basically what boot camp is all about. Do what you're told to do, and they will tell you to do some of the dumbest things. That you will question, just to teach you, do it and don't ask questions. Because one of the most serious violations in the military is to disobey a direct order. Because you learn that from the very beginning. How many military folks we got in here? Is that not true? That's what they teach you in basic training. Obey an order without question. And if you disobey that order, it carries very severe penalties. 
You're always disciplined for disobeying orders. It can be anything from extra duties. You've got to peel more potatoes, dig a hole, clean the bathroom. I mean, you're going to have to do something. And it can be more severe. They can take privileges from you. You can lose rank. If it's severe enough, you can stand before a court-martial. You can be put in the stockade. You can be dishonorably discharged from the military. I mean, there, it's no small thing to disobey orders, and especially if you disobey an order while you are in combat. You can very easily be put in prison for that, and depending on what happens as a result of your disobedience. So the first and most important rule of military discipline is learning to obey. This is also the first step in spiritual victory. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 17 through 18, But God bethink that you were the servants of sin. In other words, you, you obeyed it. You obeyed sin. But you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. The very first thing that happens for you to get victory over sin is you obey. First thing, it's just like going in the military. You learn how to obey God. So now, once we've learned obedience, let's look at the weapons. Because that's the next thing they teach you in boot camp. Is once you finally get it, you just don't ask questions, do what you're told. Then they take you out on the firing range. They take you obstacle courses. They teach you how to use the armament. They teach you how to take an M16 apart blindfolded, brother. I mean, you can do it all, right? Keep your knife sharp, what a hand grenade is, how to throw it. You don't pull the pin with your teeth. I don't care what you saw on TV. Right? <laughs> you don't throw it like a baseball. Those things are heavy. So let's look at the weapons of our warfare. Typically when we think of spiritual weapons, we think of the list that the Apostle Paul gave us in the letter that he wrote to the church at Ephesus. If you found your place in Ephesus chapter 6, you may want to mark this down. It may already be marked in your Bible. He says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That means the tactics or the strategies of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, or because of this, or for that reason... Take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore having your loins girded about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, think, above all taking the shield of faith, which, uh, wherewith ye shall quench the fiery darts uh, of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching there unto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Now, the equipment that is listed here is actually very exhaustive. And I'm going to try to be as concise and direct as I can. Uh, I don't know how far I'm going to get in this today. What I don't do today, I'll finish tomorrow. But I'm going to take 30 minutes. Can you give me 30 minutes? All right, 30 minutes, done or not, I'm going to quit, okay? So we'll, let's take off. There's actually seven weapons mentioned here. I, I think I might get through the first four. I'm going to try to today. Um, if I do, fine. If I don't, fine. Um, 
But when we look at this list, it's very exhaustive. And when we break it down, we can see that it actually gives you everything that you need to combat the enemy. He said, this is the armor of God that I give you that you're going to be able to withstand in the evil day. Well, when is the evil day? You're in it. I mean, they were in it. The evil day is any time evil comes at you and you need help. That's an evil day. When the enemy is trying to destroy you, we're not looking for the tribulation to say, well, the evil day is here. No, it's happening now. When the enemy is knocking at my door and he's coming against me, he's fiery darts telling me I can't, telling you you got sickness in your body and telling you you'll never be right in your head and all of these things. Brother, you need the armor, the, the, the armor of God that you can withstand those things. And so he gives us the armor, and he tells us first thing in verse 11, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Because it's not going to do you any good to take one or two. Well, I like the sword. Well, if you go out there with a sword and you don't have a shield, you may get your feet cut off. Huh? Or your head knocked off. You may not be able to block every blow. Because there's more than one demon coming at you, and this one swinging on this side and that one on that side. Well, my sword's over here, but I ain't got anything over here. You need it all, amen? The whole armor of God. So you need to take it, and it's a good idea to put it on before you go into battle. Amen? Too many of us want to wait till we're in the midst of war to say, Oh, where's my armor? Boy, I better get this thing and put it on, you know. No, it's a good idea to have it when you go out the door, Amen? Amen. We need to get weapons that we're familiar with. So we need to be familiar with these. I remember David, you know, this is probably not conducive to the analogy we're doing here, but they tried to put armor on him that he wasn't used to, he wasn't familiar with. He's like, I can't fight in this. He was familiar with a sling, though. He said, I killed a bear with it, I killed a lion with it, and I'm going to kill that Philistine with it. Huh? Took his sling and went out and said, man, what are you doing? Coming at me like I'm a dog? said, boy, I'm going to run you through with this spear. He said, no, today I'm going to cut your head off. That's right. Because I come at you in the name of the Lord God of hosts, and this day shall I cut thy head off. Yeah. I like that story, man. He took that thing and hit him in the head. I don't know if he killed him or knocked him out, but that sword, he pulled his sword out and whacked the guy's head off. He did what he said. Picked it up and shook it at the Philistine army. They all took off running. You know what that tells me something else? Seeing you get victory gives faith to the rest of us. Yeah. Amen? Because after that, the Israelite army pursued them and started just annihilating the Philistine army. The ones they were trembling in their presence before because one person stood up and said, I can do all things through the God that strengthens me. Yeah. Took a stick and a, a string and a rock and went out there and killed the giant. Yeah. Come on. So when you get victory, that gives me hope. That gives me faith. If you can do it, bless God, I can do it. So we take that weaponry and we put it on, all of that armament. And we do that before we get into the battle, not when we get in the midst of it. The first weapon that we see, and I think it is not by accident that this is the very first thing, he says you put, you gird yourself about with truth. Yeah. And if you look at the, what he's talking about, and again, when, when Paul is writing the church, writing to the church at Ephesus, he's in prison. So he's, he's they all know what the Roman... Uniform looks like. And the belt was actually about six or eight inches wide. And everything on the armor, 
and all of the weapons that he carried were all attached to that belt. In other words, if you take the belt off, everything falls apart. It held the whole thing together. That's why he said the first thing you need to do is put on the belt of truth. Because truth holds it all together. Brother, if this thing isn't true, we've already lost the battle. We start with truth. Otherwise, everything else falls apart. Likewise, the Word of God, when it ceases to be the basis of life, everything falls apart. We'll give you an example. In 1962, a liberal Supreme Court abolished prayer from the public school. The following year, they abolished Bible reading from public school. In other words, they removed truth. They took off the belt. And what happened? It fell apart. Now, two generations have graduated and we have been subjected to this godless philosophies through our school system for two generations now. The children that have grown up in that godless environment have now become parents, teachers, political leaders, the new media people, playwriters, actors, entertainment, clergymen, business, and professional people. Ignorant of the Christian, Judeo-Christian values that made this country what it is. They're ignorant of it. So therefore, they are incapable of passing truth on to the next generation. And so our, the fabric of our society has now been formed by a godless philosophy when they took the truth out of school. What is the result of that? From that time on, there has been a rise in teenage pregnancy, up 556%. Venereal disease is up 226%. There is now 35,000 new cases of VD reported every day. A doctor telling a teenager you've got a sexually transmitted disease, 35,000 a day. Family divorce had declined for 15 years leading up to 1962. It then tripled every year since. The SAT scores had previously been stable. Then they started their remarkable continuing decline. In an attempt to mask the embarrassing results, the basis of the scores has been revised downward. We don't want to admit that our kids are not smart anymore. We want them to do good on the SAT. We just give them a dummy down SAT so they look smart. Hey, if you can't do algebra, I'm going to give you a 2 plus 2 equals 4 math test. So you look smart. Amen? Do do you get it? So it makes us look good. It looks like the teacher's still doing their job. Moral teaching and proper standards and respect for rules have been removed from the schools. Meaningless courses in value clarifications and the tenets of secular humanism which was classified as a religion in the Supreme Court in 1961, has been the substitute. So instead of teaching you what is right and wrong, they teach you there is no right and wrong. Value situations. Right is what you decide is right for you. 
situation ethics and things that have replaced biblical teaching of yea, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. There are absolutes. Secular humanism tries to teach you that there are no absolutes. Well, that's an absolute. It's absolutely no salute. It's an absolute. Amen? What do these facts prove? When you remove truth, you remove the defense against evil which that truth provides. And everything falls apart. Somebody once said, a man puts into practice tomorrow what he believes today. Write that down, Hunter, because I wanted to go on my sign out here one day. Man puts into practice tomorrow what he believes today. It's important to teach your children. Amen? Are you still with me? Because I remember at the camp out a couple weeks ago, the Lord just really spoke that to my heart out of Deuteronomy. You teach your children. You teach them when you rise up. You teach them when you lay down. You sit them, teach them when you're in the house. You teach them when you're outside the house. We need to be teaching our children the values of God's Word because they will put into practice tomorrow what they believe today. Need to teach them truth. Everybody say truth. truth. All right. The second weapon. I've got 15 minutes. Second weapon is righteousness. He said, having on, in verse 14, having on the breastplate of righteousness. That is guarding the, the, the boiler, what we call the boiler room in, in deer hunting the, uh, uh, technology. This is the boiler room. That's where all your vitals are. Inside your chest area is your heart. So basically what the breastplate was designed for was to protect your vitals, to protect mainly your heart. And in a spiritual sense, that is what it is referring to. We want to guard our heart. That is something God showed me a very, very long time ago. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Because we can get an attitude that is wrong. And God quickly will remind us, guard your heart. You don't have the right to do that. You don't have the right to hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness. To get even. To strike back. You don't have the right to do that. And if you do... And if that's what you are thinking and wanting to do, that's why the weapons are there. It's to cast down those imaginations and things that exalt himself against what God said. So we need to keep that breastplate on to protect our heart. You say, what is the most important stewardship in life? And if you ask people that question, they will come up with all kinds of answers. Well, you need, you need the, what should you give your attention to take care of? Most importantly, let's say, well, your health. You know, if you don't have your health, nothing else in life is going to matter. Or some people may say, well, your family, or if you're of a religious background, you say, well, going to church and doing the things that you're supposed to do, being good, and giving to the poor, and those kind of things. But the most important stewardship in life is to guard your heart. Guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep thy heart. Heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. In other words, what is in your heart is what you're going to do. Jesus said this, Out of a good man's heart comes forth that which is good, and out of an evil man's heart brings forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We both speak and act out of what is in our heart. So that is our, that's what we've got to watch out for. 
And when we look at righteousness, what is true righteousness? Righteousness is something that we are. It is not something that we do. Righteousness is within us. It's what we do because of what is in us. It is not what we do that makes us righteous. Now let me explain that. Because we think the word righteousness actually means to be in right standing with God. But what makes you in right standing with God? What you do? Does that make you right with God? No. That's not what makes you right with God. Because I'm right with God, I do what I'm supposed to. But it begins with what is in my heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now there's a difference between doing things that's right and being right. That's the difference between religion and relationship. Because you see, there's a lot of people that in their mind they're righteous because of the religion that they practice. But nothing has ever changed in here. They don't have a relationship. They have a religion. Matthew 5.20, he says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now what's he talking about? The Pharisees and the scribes followed the letter of the law precisely. I mean, the word Pharisee actually means separated. So they separated from themselves from the world, but all the things they did did not save them. In fact, when Jesus encountered uh, different encounters with the lost, he was always kind and polite and generous and merciful. But when he ran up with the Pharisees, brother, if a preacher came in here and talked to people, though the Pharisaical spirit like Jesus talked to the Pharisees, he'd be voted out. Calling them liars and thieves and whitewashed sepulchers filled with dead man's bone, hypocrites. I mean, he got on their case all the time. Why? They did all the right things, but nothing had changed in their heart. They had a religion, but they didn't have a relationship. There are many very righteous religions that always include step to entering the kingdom. Like keeping the laws, different sacraments, certain prayers that you recite, special forms of communion, confession, sometimes dress code. This is one of the enemy's oldest weapons. He attempts to replace true righteousness with religion and make you feel good. You can feel good about your religion. Give you a false peace. To make you feel like I'm right with God. Why? Well, I give my tithes. I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible. I do all these things. But Jesus said on that day, many shall stand before me and say, Lord, Lord, I've cast out devils in your name, prophesied in your day. I've done many mighty things in your name. He says, depart from me, you who works iniquity. I don't know you. It's not about acts and religious acts. It's about relationship. 
It's about knowing Him. Because He became sin that we would be made righteousness through our relationship with Him. Man has attempted to save himself since the Garden of Eden. What was the first thing that Adam did and Eve did when they sinned? They covered themselves. They tried to cover themselves. They tried to take care of their sin themselves. That's what religion does. It tries through all these forms and formulas and rituals and rites to take care of my sin. And then God took and killed an innocent animal and shed the innocent blood of an animal to cover their sins and show them there's nothing you can do to make you righteous. It's going to take the innocent blood of my Son, Jesus Christ, to make you right. So putting on the breastplate of righteousness is not just putting on good works and integrity and honesty and putting on Bible reading and putting on church attendance, giving money, giving to the poor, and all those things. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness is putting our trust in the work of the cross through repentance. And we then experience the transforming power of God and our heart is changed. You see, that's what we get to guard is that. Our heart is changed. Then this is, this is what happens. And I'm going to close with this because I told you I was going to quit at 1230 and I'm almost there. This is what happens. When God created man in the Garden of Eden, the Bible says that He created man and He made him after His image and after His likeness. And the Bible says that God breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life and He became a living soul. So the source of life in Adam came from God. Because of that, he was upright or righteous in the sight of God. And all of his drive, his heart, because what we do is it comes from here. And because his heart was right, everything he did was inclined towards God. Now when he saw the tree, and, and actually... Eve is the one that was, was drawn in and, and lured in her mind, first of all. And then in her emotions, she saw it. Then her emotions desired it. And then her spirit partook of it. So it's, it's, it's a process that's not, never reversed. We're always drawn into sin the same way. Adam wasn't drawn that way. His was more deliberate because he knew better. He was not deceived, you understand. He partook of the tree because he wanted to keep Eve. He wanted to be with her. So he partook of the tree. And when that happened, the spirit, that inclination, that pure heart inside of him died. Just as God told him it would. And now his inclination is not towards God anymore. His inclination is towards sin. Then the Bible says that Adam went out and took his wife and she conceived and bare Cain and then again and bare Abel. Cain and Abel both were not in the image of God they, just like you and I, were in the image of Adam. And the life source didn't come from God. The life source in mankind came from man. From your mother and your father. Do you understand that? And their nature, their inclination towards sin was passed down with that. So when we're born, the Bible says you're born in sin. You are inclined towards sin. If you have to choose between right and wrong, you'll choose wrong. Because you're drawn to that. You're inclined to that. And then somebody comes along and says, you don't have to be that way anymore. I've got good news for you. Huh? The gospel. 
Good news for you. God shed innocent blood so that your sin could be not only covered but removed. And if you would place your trust in Jesus Christ and you will repent of that sin that you're so drawn to, repent means you will turn from it and turn towards Jesus Christ by putting your trust in Him, you'll be saved. And then the Bible says, with the mouth, with the heart, man believes. Unto what? Righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So it begins with my heart. I, I say, wow, you know, I don't have to be drawn this way anymore? You mean that I can have the life of God, the nature of God inside of me? My heart can be changed? Yeah. It can be born all over again. It can be born not after the nature and likeness of man, but your heart can be born after the nature and the likeness of God. He will breathe life into you if you will just put your trust in what He's provided for you. That's the good news. You don't have to live in sin anymore. You can live in righteousness. Your heart can be changed. And so you're like, I believe that. I believe that, God. I want your gift. I want the gift of eternal life. I want that righteousness that you promised me. I want that transformation. I want my mind transformed by the renewing of your, of your word. So God, begin that work in me. I, I trust in Jesus. Pow! Your heart is, it's not a, it's not a, a evolution. It is a revolution. It is changed instantly. And the Bible says the Spirit of God comes and dwells in you. And your heart, your spirit is made one with Him and it is completely and totally perfect. And then the process begins to perfect the mind and the sanctification of the mind and being transformed and dying daily and realizing, I've got to get victory over this area. Lord, I need your help. I can't do it in and of myself, Lord. What has changed? Because before when I would do that, I didn't care. I didn't care. Why? I was inclined towards sin. I wanted it. I lusted after it. And my conscience was clean. Because I didn't care. But something happened. And now when I slip up and fall, which we still do, I'm still looking for the person that is that doesn't sin and, and lives their life completely to the glory of God. I'd love to sit under their teaching. But they don't exist. Amen? I mean, I've got some issues I'd like to go to somebody that's perfect and say, Brother, how? how? Tell me how you do that, you know. But I found out they're not around, you know. Some people come to me thinking, I got that deal, and I can tell you right now. Not there, amen. But I am being transformed. I'm being changed by the renewing of my mind. I'm not being conformed to this world. Why? Because once I didn't care, my conscience didn't care, but something changed inside of me. And I was made righteous. My inclination now is towards God so that when I do trip up and I do fall, I am convicted inside. I know it's not right. I'm ashamed. There's guilt all over me. And nothing will take care of that until I go to God and say, I'm sorry, God. One more time. Because if we sin. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's faithful and just to forgive us of that sin and to make your heart pure again. Yeah. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness and make you righteous again. Why? It begins here. It's not the things that we do that make us righteous. It's the condition of our heart. It's a relationship with God. Is that clear? 
So he says, if you are going to defeat the enemy, you've got to put on the whole armor. It's all held together with the truth. You want to know what the truth is? Jesus came to set you free. Now, he wants to change your heart. Now, you put the breastplate on and you protect that. And when the enemy comes and he starts accusing you of this and accusing you of that and adding all this on to it, you don't run to him and say, oh, no, 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 that's not true. Look at what I did, man. I gave to the poor. Man, I tithe every day. I fast once a week. Huh? Isn't that what the Pharisee said? He said two men went down to the synagogue. One of them a Pharisee, the other one a publican. The Pharisee said, I thank God that I'm not like this publican. I tithe every week. I fast once a week. The publican said he would not even lift up his eyes towards heaven, but he beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He said, which one went down justified? Why? He had a relationship. This guy had a religion. So you don't stand and say, oh, no, 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 that's not true, Satan. Can't strike my righteousness. Look at all the things I've done. No. You look at him and say, well, that's true. But my faith is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not claim the sweetest fame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Because it's not by the acts of righteousness which I have done, but by His Spirit He transformed me. You want to win this battle? Truth. Get your heart right. Keep it right. Alright? Next week I'm going to give you some more weapons. Stand to your feet. Amen. That was good. Amen. I enjoyed it. I don't know if you did or not. Praise God. Hey, you know what time it is? On the button. 1230. Amen. Good as my word. Praise God. Hallelujah. If you're here this morning and maybe you've just been practicing a dead religion. And you realize this morning, you know what? My heart has never been truly changed. I do the right things. I say the right things. But I have never really experienced that transforming power of God. And pastor, something this morning you said has just really hit me right here. And you need to make that right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you right now just to step out from your seat. And you come and get before God. This is not between you and me. It's not between you and the church. This is between you and God. Now he said this. He said, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and you believe that He's rose from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart you believe unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What is he saying? You need to profess me before men. And there's no better way of doing that than just right now among people that care about you and love you to say, today, I'm going to make a decision for Christ. I'm going to ask Him to come in my heart and transform me and change me. If you're here this morning, I'm, to, I'm just going to pray and dismiss in prayer. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, to step out of your seat and come and get before God. Don't leave with your heart in a lost condition. For those of you that's listening to this via the internet or maybe somebody's giving you a copy of this tape, wherever you are right now, you can make things right with God. You didn't have this message placed in your hand by mistake. Someone 
cared enough about you to tell you about this message. And God wants you to know that you can be transformed by His power instantly, right where you are. Now I'm going to pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I come before your throne, Lord. God, I'm just your servant. Lord, your mouthpiece. Sometimes I feel so inadequate to deliver the message that you've placed in my heart. But Lord, no matter what I've done, whether it's doing a good job or not, God, I lay it at your feet and I ask you, God, to take it, Lord. You give it increase, Lord. Make it, make it right, Lord. Anything that was said, Lord, that didn't bring glory and honor to you, God, just let it fall to the ground, Lord. But whatever has been said that was spurred by the unction of the Holy Spirit, God, breathe life into it. Now, Father, if there's somebody here this morning that they don't know you, God, their heart's not right, Lord. They're just practicing the form of religion. But, Lord, they've never had a transforming touch from you. God, make their heart right today. Lord, we just, each and every one of us, we come before you right now, Lord. We've all missed the mark, God. All of us, Lord, we sinned. Father, just like David, it was willingly, deliberately. And Father, just like he prayed, Lord, we come before you and say, God, today, again, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Father, we pray that today, that we walk out of this place, Lord, right with you. God, that we stand firmly on the truth. And God, we will not deny what is true. Even though the enemy rages against us, Lord, he tells us that we're narrow-minded, nearsighted, whatever. Lord, we know what the truth is. We know the truth, Lord. And God, you said if we continue in you, then we're your disciples. And we will know the truth. And the truth will make us free. So, Father, this morning, we just put on the belt of truth right now, God. We put it on, Lord. And we will walk in it, Lord Jesus. And, God, we just make our hearts right before you and we we protect it, God. We put on that righteousness, Lord. We thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The power that's in that blood. To change the heart of man, Lord. Now, Father, help us, O God, to take the truth that we have learned here today and share it with other people. God, there's so many people that they've got that nature that's inclined towards sin. Help us somehow to show them, God, that you can change them so that they will be inclined towards you once again. As you meant it to be in the beginning. Thank you, God. That you direct us, you convict us when we do things that's wrong, Lord. If there's somebody here, God, and they begin to slip away from you, Lord. God, it's becoming easier and easier for them to sin, God. Their conscience doesn't bother them as much anymore. Lord, it's being seared, Lord. It's being, God, it's not sensitive to to your bidding and your calling anymore, God. Just help them, Lord, to get back to that place where they hear your voice. They, they sense your leading, Lord. And that they have a heart for you once again. Now, Father, we give you praise for what you've done here today, Lord.